0: Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Future Cities. I'm Steve Nelser. In 2020, issues of systemic racism and racial justice rightfully rose to the forefront of many people's minds. These issues are relevant in all aspects of society, including academia and STEM fields. In solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and inspired by other efforts that we've seen on social media to elevate Black voices in STEM, we wanted to use our platform on this podcast to amplify the voices of black scientists working in the field of urban resilience. So, for Black History Month, February, we will be publishing one episode every week featuring a conversation with a different black scientist in our field. We've never published so many episodes in such a short period of time and plan to go back to just publishing one or two episodes a month after this, but our team felt that this was important and were willing to put in the extra work to get these conversations to you. So, a big thanks to Yoan Kim Robert Lloyd, and Marissa Matzler for taking the lead on these special episodes. Okay, without further ado, here's the first episode of our Block History Month series. Enjoy.
1: Hey, hello everyone, this is Robert Lloyd back with you again on the Future Cities podcast, and I am so excited and feel so privileged to have the guests that we have for you for this installment. Dr. J. Marshall Shepherd is a leading international expert in weather and climate, the Georgia Athletic Association Distinguished Professor of Geography and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Georgia. He was the 2013 president of the American Meteorological Society, He serves as the director of UGA's Atmospheric Sciences Program and is a full professor in the Department of Geography, host of a weather channel Sunday talk show, Weather Geeks, and oh heavens, I feel like we could fill the whole episode just reading from your resume, but I'm going to stop doing that and let you introduce and talk to yourself. Jay Marshall Shepard, thank you so much for being on the Future Cities Podcast.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. And I, I should mention one thing that the Weather Geeks that you mentioned used to be a Sunday talk show, and but we now do it as a podcast because, as you well know, because we are on a podcast right now, uh, people consume information a lot differently than they did even a few years ago. And so Weather Channel wanted to reach people in a different way. So uh, I, I probably need to update some of my bios. I, I think somewhere out there it says talk show. Some places it says talk show and podcast. But I'm, I'm really happy to be here um yeah it's a really uh hopefully can have some really interesting conversations today I, having be, being a host of podcasts i certainly appreciate the value of them myself
1: yeah excellent thank you well yeah thank you so much for that update and uh people who are already primed to be podcast listeners uh will i'm sure run and uh check that out and we'll we'll give uh more information on how they can find you and uh, your your various outlets uh, before we close today. I'm all over the place. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you have so much going on and have al- already done so much. So tell us if you would, um, about your background, how did you get to this position? How did you become an esteemed meteorologist? Yeah,
2: well, you know, it's interesting. I'm a professor at UGA, but before coming to UGA in 2006, I, I spent 12 years of my career as a scientist at NASA working on various weather and climate satellites uh, to study our planet Earth. I mean, NASA, people are like, well, NASA, scientists, Earth. Well, Earth is a planet. And as I often say, it's the planet I care most about because we're not going anywhere anytime soon. So we need to take care of this one. So, you know, I did my PhD, master's, and bachelor's degree in physical meteorology uh, from Florida State University. I've always been interested in weather since sixth grade. My sixth grade science project was about weather. And so from that point on, I really explored weather. But, you know, the term meteorologist, I often often these days try to use the more generic term atmospheric scientist, because when I say I'm a meteorologist, people think I'm on TV and start asking me what channel I'm on or what the weather is tomorrow. And I don't mean... (laughs) Uh, There are meteorologists to do, but most don't. I'm I'm the former president of the American Meteorological Society, which is our primary professional society in our field. And
0: only about
2: 8% of meteorologists actually do that. But that's just what most people are familiar with. So, you know, I've always been interested in sort of the hows and whys of weather. My research centers around things like urban climate. Uh, extreme uh, hydrometeorological or weather events, even things like climate risk and vulnerability. So uh, these days I'm a classic academic at the university. I, I have graduate students and I teach and I have large research grants from people like the National Science Foundation, NASA and so forth. But I also do these other things because it's important to me to not just be an academic in the ivory tower talking to ourselves and talking to journals and conferences, policymakers, press, and the public need to understand the value of what we do as academics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in fact, uh, one of my first introductions to you and your work was the YouTube video of the terrific TED Talk that you gave several years back. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that has racked up uh, a huge amount of views. Uh, The title was Slaying the Climate Zombies. Uh, And I believe that was the same one where you talked a lot about uh, science, education, and communication in general. Well, I,
2: well, I did. That's actually one of the older ones. I actually thought you were referring to the more recent TED Talk I gave on uh, three biases of science, which he's even racked up even more views.
1: Oh, uh, super. Kind of, well, yeah, three, tell us. A,
2: three million sorry. views on that one. Um, something tell us similar, about that, if you would. Yeah, similar topic with the one that you're referring to, slaying the climate zombies. That that was a talk that I I gave to just Slay these zombie theories. I call them zombie theories. These things that people say about climate change that we as scientists have long refuted, but they just live on in blogs and in Twitter like zombies. They won't go away, but we've long refuted them. So that's why I call them climate zombie theories and so that that particular TED talk did pretty well, but I, I did one at UGA TEDx last year that got picked up by the larger TED organization because they really liked it. And it, it's really looking at the three, bi- three biases that shape how people consume science. Sure. And so that one's approaching 3 million views right now. And I talk about things like confirmation bias and Dunning-Kruger effect. Other cognitive biases that shape how people consume weather warnings, climate change, and even other aspects of of our society. So I would invite your listeners to take a look at um, both of those TED Talks. And candidly, I actually have a third TEDx talk that I gave in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago that's talking about something that's perhaps relevant to Future Cities podcast. About the weather and climate gap, this idea that extreme weather events like Hurricane Katrina or a drought or a heat wave disproportionately affects certain populations, marginalized and frontline populations. And so in that particular TED Talk is TED, TEDx Ledroit Park. And uh, You just Google that in my name, you'll probably find it. Uh, so uh, yeah, I've got three TED Talks out there, and they're, they're all doing well. But more importantly, they're talking about things that I think are vital intersections between scholarship, academic scholarship, and relevance to society.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for updating me on that and uh, updating the listeners as well. Um, so, yeah, we, we've talked a lot about your work in general, but, and of, of course, you just uh, filled us in on some of your public science work about uh, correcting some of the miseducation, some of the misconceptions about the climate and about science in general. But what are some other highlights of your research?
2: Well, you know, I've, most of my, the work that I'm known for from a scholarly standpoint is on how urban environments affect uh, precipitation, storms, and flooding. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to receive some pretty major awards for that work. Uh, The Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, it's called the P.K.'s Award from President Bush at the White House in 2004. Uh, The American Meteorological Society's Helmut Landsberg Award uh, for uh, pioneering work in urban climate. So, you know, I've, I've sort of published some of the, over the last two decades, some of the best-known theories and explanations for how cities can not only create but also impact rainstorms, uh, thunderstorms, lightning, and and, and urban flooding. Uh, that That's what I'm really known for um, as far as my primary scholarship. But I, I also have several fairly well-known research studies and publications as it relates to Hurricanes and precipitation, for example, something called the brown ocean effect, which is this idea that storms can hurricanes can maintain or intensify over land after they make landfall if the soil is wet. Uh, some work we've done recently on vulnerability of counties in Georgia to climate, and even broadening that to the U.S. So that that really is a snapshot of my portfolio of sort of scholarly research at the University of Georgia and before that at NASA. Uh, and then, of course, I you know I do. Focus on it's not really my day job, but this idea of broader climate uh, and science communication as well, and so that's why I, I also am a senior contributor to Forbes magazine. I do the Weather Geeks podcast for the Weather Channel, these TED talks that you've mentioned, and, and I'm very active on Twitter. If you're out there at at, at dr. Shepherd at Doctor Shepherd 2013.
1: Super, yeah. Well, uh, I live in Atlanta. Uh, I'm a student at Georgia State University, um, which, of course, I, I think. Uh, there's a, a strong sort of sister institution relationship with University of Georgia as well as with Georgia Tech, uh, and Atlanta being such a huge metropolitan area, you know, urban heat island is a, a big topic of conversation for us as well. Uh, and uh, you mentioned hurricanes, and of course, we just came off of a record hurricane season, and Atlanta did not escape the 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 wrath of uh, of Hurricane Zeta. In fact. Um my neighborhood in Southwest Atlanta, we got hit pretty hard and we had a tree limb through our roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, we actually you
2: know. had some issues here. You know, the winds were, you know, I, you know, I think that's one of the things that we think about hurricanes now. People often think about coastal impacts, and that's certainly uh, relevant. But as our climate is changing and we're seeing these storms maintain their intensity a bit longer as they move inland, I think places like Atlanta will increasingly deal with these flood events, these down-tree events, uh, high winds. Even with Hurricane Michael a few years ago, things still had 100-mile-per-hour wind gusts into southwest Georgia and destroyed our pecan and cotton and, and other crops down in that agriculturally intense region. So. Uh, You know, some of our research on the Brown Ocean effect has looked at this idea that storms can maintain their intensity or intensify inland, but for different reasons. But there were even recent studies in the peer-reviewed literature that suggest that because of climate change, storms are staying stronger longer. And so that means that you'll have more inland impacts, particularly even in in cities uh, that may be very far removed from the coast.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as far as the urban question goes, too, you already alluded to this um, one one aspect of uh, extreme events, as well as other issues affecting cities that we talk about in the research networks that I'm a part of, is the fact that uh, things like income inequality can be magnifiers of some of these risks. Um, Atlanta has, uh, for a couple of years in a row... Uh, made the list of the cities in the U.S. with the worst income inequality. Um, so yeah, cities like Atlanta definitely uh, feel, uh, particularly in some parts of the population, uh, an undue amount of uh, the, the the stress and the the damage that that storms like this can cause and other extreme events.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would say that that's right. I mean, I think the, the sort of example that I always hold up for people is Hurricane Katrina in 2005. I think mm-hmm. everyone in the Gulf Coast and New Orleans region was exposed to the hurricane. But if you look at who was there in the Superdome, uh, you know, needing help, medical supplies, shelter, food, et cetera, it were you know lower income, primarily African-American, marginalized communities. And that's something that we know is going to be the case with extreme heat waves Hurricanes, flooding. I mean, uh, one of my my former PhD students, who's now a professor at the University of Texas San Antonio, in his dissertation a couple of years ago, found that in Atlanta, in the Atlanta to uh, Charlotte corridor, I eighty five urban corridor, sixty to eighty percent of African Americans live within flood prone regions, and that that all of those things are related to. Uh, economic inequalities, the income gap or wealth gap that you alluded to, and and of course, Atlanta is certainly on the lower end of the spectrum when it comes to that. And so when we deal with heat waves, which we do in Atlanta, when we deal with tornadic storms, which we do in Atlanta, when we deal with flooding, when we deal with, um, you know, other aspects of of climate-related events, uh, heat, drought, and so forth, uh, there are certain parts of our city Uh, and other cities, for that matter, that are going to be disproportionately at risk. Uh, They're going to bear the brunt or the burden of the health outcomes of the economic disparities and so forth. And so this is something that we've spoken to. And this is why in that paper that I published with my former student, Benita Casey, we published a Climate Vulnerability Index for every county in Georgia. And that Climate Vulnerability Index not only looked at the climate extremes in those counties over the last several decades, but... What type of people live in them and what are their sensitivities or their adaptive capacity or resilience their ability to ba- bounce back from these events and so not surprisingly to me at least many of the most vulnerable counties in Georgia are urban counties counties that have a significant urban population or a significant population of marginalized or minority populations in them as well so this is something that we have it, we, and we just published this year a broader extension of that work, looking at counties in the entire United States out to the year 2040 using climate models. So we have a paper just out looking at vulnerability and risk as a, a function of both the, the physical science side and the social vulnerability side. And we projected that out to the year 2040. So I invite you to take a look at that work by Benita Casey, myself, and others. So.
1: Yes, I definitely will. Uh, and I think you have really highlighted uh, how uh, increasingly scientists uh, can't and don't work in specialized fields necessarily, um, but often have to be interdisciplinary or at least um, break out of their own, their, the, the boundaries of, uh, you know, the field that, that might be on their, their diploma or that they usually work in and yeah. uh, partner up with people who are working in other areas you know physical scientists partnering up with social scientists um maybe with city practitioners as well
2: yeah i think that's right i mean even you know you, you know, we have a couple of projects ongoing here in this in the state of georgia one called the georgia climate project the other called drawdown georgia yes. uh, there are large efforts funded by the racy anderson foundation that involve multiple universities the university of georgia Emory and Georgia Tech were sort of the principal first three, but Georgia State is involved in a couple of these efforts as well. And we have experts from across the academic spectrum on those projects tackling these issues related to climate in Georgia, for example. Interestingly enough, when I was leaving NASA, I'm a card carrying physical meteorologist. My degrees are all in physical meteorology. But when I was leaving Georgia, I'm so, sorry, NASA to join the faculty at the University of Georgia, people were like, why are you joining a geography department? Uh, when, I mean, I had you know, meteorology and atmospheric sciences department saying, Hey, come, come join us. And so forth. Yeah. First of all, people don't know what geography is. And I, I learned that very quickly when I joined the geography department, because people still think it's like maps and rivers and memorizing capitals and things. And it's a much broader look at sort of how humans interact with its environment, you know, political ecology, uh, climatology, physical geography, um, GIS, it's, it's a, a large and broad area. but why it was attractive to me as a department is because I was doing work at the intersection of meteorology, climate, and urbanization. And so uh, inherently, some of my work and some of my interests and even some of my emerging interests, i just talked about climate risk and so forth, are not just physical science problems. They are problems that, as you noted, sort of just cross disciplinary boundaries and silos. And so These days, I don't even look at a research question as, oh, that's a meteorology research question. I was like, it's a science question or it's a a scholarly question. And what tools and expertise do I need at my disposal in order to get at the answer to that question or at least evaluate the hypotheses?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So, uh, you know, you've already alluded to this somewhat, but uh, it's uh, on the minds of a lot of us. Uh, for the listeners, uh, you and I were recording this at the very end of 2020, uh, right before Christmas and New Year's. Uh, so, you know, it has been a year. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little cliche to, to say that at this time, uh, but it, it'll be, I think, very much on the minds of people listening when this podcast comes out in February. Uh, you know, still pretty fresh after the new year. Uh, everything that we've gone through this year, of course, we had a, a pandemic, worldwide pandemic, unprecedented in your and my lifetime. Uh, we have had uh, racial justice uprisings around the world. Uh, and as we said, a record hurricane season, you know, among the, the many stressors and uh, everyday things that we all go through. And and I would be remiss in not mentioning a hotly contested presidential uh, elections, set of congressional election elections as well as uh smaller local ones um, so are there some other ways that you and your partners uh have responded to the particular challenges of this year 2020?
2: uh I, well absolutely I mean on all of those fronts i i 'll start with the pandemic because that 's certainly something that impacted all of our lives. I mean, my wife and I actually wrote a book just about our experiences being sort of stuck in the house and what we oh, were wow. learning about ourselves and about broader issues in society as we were sitting in our homes sort of stuck watching the world go by so to speak so you know my wife was just documenting her thoughts every day on facebook and i just started singing i was like you know there we should write about this and so i i started taking her daily posts and then sort of broadening them out into these sort of broader discussions of racial issues uh, issues with raising our kids just things that would People that everyday people would resonate with. I mean, it's not really a science book at all. It's just a book about a family of four dealing with being in sort of lockdown. Uh, A few months later, we dealt with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Armand Arbery and the racial issues. And I was so, as an African American male who has experienced, you know microaggressions and who has experienced being accused of being a car thief because i was driving a rental car in a region where so po- supposedly they were car thieves when i was a nasa scientist in a rental car um you know i you know i've lived some of these things thankfully i haven't been you know shot or had a knee in my neck but i was so dismayed by those things that i wrote another book <laughs> i actually wrote a book called the racial Awake the race awakening of 2020 a six step guide for moving forward. And I wrote that book because I, I had so many people that weren't African-American or Black just emailing me apologizing after George Floyd and asking how they can change or what they could do differently. So I said, wow, if this many people, if this is a watershed moment on racial issues, I have some thoughts. And so I put those down in a small short, very shorthand book, about 70 pages long. It's available. All these books are available on Amazon, by the way. Um, And then, of course, with the pandemic and the hurricane season, uh, there's an infectious disease colleague here at UGA, John Drake, who approached me and some other colleagues and said, "Hey, let's. What are the implications of a pandemic and a a hyperactive hurricane season? Is there sort of an epidemiology of extreme weather events?" And so we wrote a little proposal that got funded by UGA an internal grant to look at this idea of what were the sort of implications and outcomes of dealing with a pandemic while perhaps evacuating from a hurricane. People are evacuating in the shelters, but yet we have a pandemic going on. Uh, people evacuate from tornadoes in the spring, but into shelters. But there's a pandemic going on. You've got FEMA and others that are dealing with a pandemic, but they also have to respond to a hurricane. So we, we're, we're looking at that in this compounded way. Uh, and hopefully we'll have some results here in the next couple of years or two. That can inform future policy on exactly this type of compound extreme scenario.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. Boy, this is all really interesting. Um, one thing that I wanna really make sure to get your perspective on is uh, exactly what the title of this podcast indicates the future of cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, of, of course, I live in Atlanta, and University of Georgia, for those who, who aren't familiar with the geography, is in Athens which is a good distance outside Atlanta. Well, I live um, right
2: between the two of you, by the way. <laughs> okay. So
1: yeah, you, you are nicely nestled in there into the, in, probably sit in the influence of both, both communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's still a, a very relevant question for you. So, uh, one, uh, one sort of benchmark time that we like to look at, uh, on the podcast and in the research networks that I'm a part of is the year 2080, a nice round number, Uh, you know, off in the future, but not so far off that uh, a lot of us won't still be around to see it. Um, So for the community that you live in and the communities you work in and that are special to you for whatever reason, maybe that you have a particular research interest in or just have an affection for loved ones there, what have you, uh, what would you like to see change what do you think needs to change in the cities that you're familiar with that are special to you but also cities in general
2: well I mean I actually have a direct answer to this question because I'm working with a group of engineers at Georgia Tech on engineering cities for thermal justice uh, oh brilliant what I mean by that is you know, we know that you know there are historical reasons redlining and other practices that have made some communities and cities more vulnerable to heat. For example, through the urban heat island and so forth. Uh, I don't do a lot of heat island work, but this is something that I'm, we've really been thinking about. So a group of engineers from Georgia Tech approached me because they know how to remove excess heat from computer server farms for Apple and Google and Yahoo. And they were like, what if we could do that at the scale of a city? What mm-hmm. if we could redistribute or repurpose heat? Uh, that the city is generating itself. And so we started exploring this, we wrote a little grant, National Science Foundation funded a planning grant, uh, which we completed last year. And so now we're in the process of proposing an engineering research center uh, for thermally just cities. And we are fundamentally talking about in the next several decades, this idea of being able to engineer the city in terms of its heat to mitigate injustices in how people live or perhaps even leverage heat when we need it for other energy purposes and so forth. So it's really taking this this thermal environment created by a city and utilizing that excess heat or repurposing it, or in some cases redistributing it in a more equitable and just fashion from people. So that's certainly something that by 2080, I hope if we you know are able to move forward on that, I hope that will be a reality. This idea that a a, a poor African-American community in, in Atlanta is suffering disproportionately from heat stress because of the urban environment, we'll, we, at least we can, engineer that away. And I I think there are ways we've explored that we can do it. So that's that's one way that I would respond to that question. You know, my wife's an urban planner, by the way. Her degrees are in in, uh, uh, urban and regional planning from Florida State. She has a master's degree. That's, That's where I met her, in fact. So she's always thinking about things about, you know, fair housing and equitable housing issues, Uh, You know, we're still sort of feeling the scars and DNA of things like redlining and and Jim Crowism and so forth. And so uh, we even now we're seeing some really interesting dynamics where you've got some gentrification going on in major cities. But then you have communities that were sort of not able to afford to live in Atlanta or D.C. or Philadelphia now moving out into the inner suburbs. And so, then that is in turn making some people in those suburbs uncomfortable. So they're moving further out into the exurbs, and so it's creating an interesting political dynamic. And we saw that play out in Georgia just with this election cycle, with how the how the the demographic shifts in the inner suburbs of, of suburbs of Atlanta versus the exurbs. I grew up in Cherokee County. I grew up in Canton, Georgia, which is exurban, uh, close to suburb, but really exurban. And uh, I think there's some interesting dynamics. Uh, in twenty eighty, it's gonna. I'm, I'm, I don't have any thoughts on it, but it's gonna just be interesting to see what the diversification of places like. Georgia are in terms of where people live. Because let's face it, there's still racial issues out there. You still hear hear code words. People say, well, I'm moving further out to a different county because the schools have gone down in that one, or it's gone downhill. Those are racial code words that I talk all about in my book, by the way. So by the year 2080, are those people, are they going to have to move to the moon to get away from us? I don't know. We'll see. But I guarantee you, we'll find a way to get to the moon too. So um, the, the, the point is here. Um, you've got these sort of sort of geographic shifts and these sort of urban redistributions of where people live, and some of it is driven by economy. Some of it is driven, frankly by race. Some of it is driven by you know, transportation networks and corridors, the classic things that drive city development and growth. So I, I'm really fascinated on what the 2080 city will look like. Uh, or will that concept, will we have a completely new concept or construct, is right now there's a significant divide between urban and rural. I mean, I I live in suburbia. I grew up more of a rural community, but I certainly understand urban issues too. Um, Will those terms even be relevant in 2080? I don't know.
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, we we talk a lot about um, city transformations, the way cities uh, must transform for these these different futures that we're talking about, but also the ways that they transform uh, without necessarily the residents even intending them to. Um, so you know, and change can happen so much more quickly now that it, it, as you say, it's an open question whether this is the cities of sixty years from now or even less will uh, will look. The way they do now the way we like to think about a city um, yeah I
2: I, I I i do i think there will be there will be some fundamental shifts i mean i mean you know will there be this sort of redistribution back out to the rural communities or will we continue to see these massive blobs i've often talked about what i call urban climate archipelagos this idea that you know these corridors or aggregates of cities for example like the Atlanta at the charlotte corridor or the long-standing D.C. to New York-Boston corridor, perhaps even the Orlando-Tampa to the Miami, these, these sort of individualized cities become megalopoli or what I call urban climate archipelagos because I think they have an aggregate impact on climate systems that's different than one individual city. And I've published some work on urban climate archipelagos in an IEEE Earth scene. And so I've, I've, I've thought about whether you're going to have these massive blobs of urbanization that (laughs) instead of urban Atlanta and Charlotte, you just call it, well, I guess people have called it Charlanta, for example. And what are the implications there socially and from a physical standpoint? I I, I believe we will see that. Um, but I also think we'll see some redistribution redistribution, perhaps out into some of the smaller communities as they become wired and, and, and gain broadband capabilities and increase transportation networks and so forth.
1: Yeah. Uh, and of course, as well as being a scientist, you are a science communicator and have worked in governance as well. So you, you have a lot of different perspectives on questions like this. I, I um, maybe you could talk about, um, what are some of the challenges that you perceive to cities uh, and all kinds of communities really changing in the way that maybe we need to to better adapt to
2: the future? Well, you know, I, again, I haven't really worked too much on the governance side. I've advised on it. So I'm, you know, that's probably a better question in some ways for my wife. But, um, you know, I think the the. Sort of political and sort of inertia and the sort of bureaucratic inertia are always going to be problems for adaptable for cities to adapt uh, as rapidly as they need to. Um, I think demographic sort of tensions and makeup are always interesting. You know, again, you know, most cities are going through some degree. I, I mean, I remember, for example, my, my wife grew up in Southwest Atlanta. It's right off of MLK. I don't know exactly where you live. But candidly, I remember a time where someone that looked like you wouldn't have lived in Southwest Atlanta to be honest with you. So there have been some shifts and changes that have gone along, and so how, how how do the the sort of shifting demographics of cities and the engagement and the com- feel of community uh, impact how things get done and are there these sort of tensions that are there between people that will prevent things from getting done? Because at the end of the day, like my one of my favorite all-time groups of of singing groups, Depeche Mode said, "People are people," um, and so and why should it be that you and I should get along so awfully? That's their, that's their um, the lyric of that song. But I think the reality is that those things are there. I mean, someone frankly that may say, "Hey, someone like you who's a very well well um, educated." person who gets it on racial and other issues. i like, well, he didn't used to live in this community, but he does now. Am I going to see him as an enemy because he's come into this community or perhaps so. or are we going to work together to make this a better place for everyone? And so I think even just subtle dynamics like that will come to play. But then, of course, the broader sort of political inertia and slow moving bureaucratic inertia, those are always going to be challenges. And as honestly i think for I, th- I think atlanta struggles a little bit compared to other places because these we are a region we have the atlanta regional commission and i don't know exactly how much power it has for governance and policy making the way some other regional organizations do again that's well outside of my area of expertise but I've, I've i've known my wife for 25 plus years now and i hear her talking about the challenges of governing and policy making in a large uh, sort of intertwined region
1: super terrific so uh We are getting close to the time when we'll have to say goodbye to each other, but uh, I just wanted to get some advice from you for maybe uh, young people thinking about going into your field or related field. Uh, Of course, uh, this is an academic podcast. It's produced by students and a lot of the listenership is students. So you you may have a lot of people out there who's – you talking and say, oh, well, a lot of that is really interesting to me. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm just starting to thinking, think about what I would like to specialize in. So if someone uh, is uh, maybe considering going in the direction that your career path is taking, do you have any uh, advice or uh, you know, warnings for them?
2: It's interesting because my career path has been so anti to what is typical for an academic path because I didn't go right out After getting a Ph.D. and get a postdoc and then get a faculty position, which is kind of the the do loop of academia in some ways. Uh, You know, I I worked for a, a year or two in a private company after getting my master's degree then I got hired by NASA and then decided to go back to school on NASA's dime. Got my Ph.D., went back to work for NASA because I owed them six years of service because they paid for my Ph.D., I had a very successful career there. I was deputy project scientist for the Global Precipitation Mission. I spent a year or two at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. I was at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in suburban Maryland. And then in 05, 06 came to the University of Georgia. So that's kind of my, my pathway. But underneath all of that, a couple of pieces of advice I'd give. If you are going to kind of be an academic, I, I would say to make sure you establish your credentials, whatever those may be, science or political are uh, not political, but policy-based or whatever your area is, firmly establish your expertise, and from that springs everything else. In other words, you know, one of my mentors is Dr. Warren Washington, who received a Presidential Medal of Science for his working climate, and he said, yeah, you're, you're articulate, and people are going to ask you to give talks and speak on TV and do all these things, but it will carry a lot more weight if you have your science credentials established. And so That resonated with me, and that's a bit of advice that I give. Don't short-circuit yourself too soon doing other things. No, I also believe you should do other things. What I mean by that is the academic ivory tower prehistoric dinosaur system does not incentivize people to do broader engagement or outreach or tweet or do podcasts or go testify before Congress or speak to the media the incentive of the academic system is still very much publish or perish and get grants or write a book. Yeah. Prehistoric things in my view. I do all of those things very well. I lead my department most years in grant money and publications in each year. So I do them. But I think we need to incentivize other aspects uh, in academia because some of the most interesting and impactful work is being done by young scholars and graduate students and assistant professors, yet they're hesitant to engage because they're trying to, they have their head downs trying to write a zillion papers and grant grants so they can get tenure or promotion. So I fundamentally think that t- that system needs to be sh- shaken up. But at the same time, it, my advice is remember you're in that system and it's a slow moving ship, so play the game but certainly find ways to engage. I frown upon this notion that you can't do everything. I tweet, I write for Forbes, I host a podcast, but I still have 10 publications this year in, in peer reviewed literature. Not all of them is first, but I mean, I'm a senior faculty member now, so I, I don't have as many first authors. But I frown upon this notion that you can't do them all. I get a complete and large headache when I hear an academic say, oh, I don't do that new stuff like Twitter, it's not new. It's been around for a while and I actually find mm-hmm. it quite useful. So uh, that, that's my advice. Don't, don't kind of get sucked into this sort of academic inertia that is really 30 years out of date in my view.
1: You know what else, too? I was super impressed uh, in my first uh, personal exposure to you. And uh, you said something like you are up at six and jump right into writing.
2: Yeah, I just because I just I wake up early. And so I know that that's the time of day when I write best. So a bit of advice that I often give is just know your body, biorhythm and work rhythms. I mean, I don't, there's certain things I, I don't, at, between about two and five, I'm not writing anything because I don't, I just, my mind's not in a writing mood in those hours. So I just have a very good working understanding of what I do best at certain times of the day. And I sort of try to stick to it to optimize and, and make myself more efficient. So. That's
1: terrific. All right, so uh, we do have to wrap it up soon, but uh, really quick, I just want to know what is uh, on the agenda in twenty twenty one for J. Marshall Shepard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, to besides to the many projects offers, that you've though. already mentioned,
2: yeah, trying to fend off all of these offers to go work in the administration. I'll certainly support the administration. I'll be. They need advice or counsel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be be there. I, I just don't want to be the head of an agency right now. So, and I think I finally kind of swatted those flies away. But no, I, you know I've got a big NASA grant that we were just funded a NASA an interdisciplinary grant, a, a, a almost two million dollar project that I'll be sort of leading. Probably be my last big project as as an academic, I think, because I I am getting sort of possible overtures about moving more into more administrative positions or roles not quite ready to do that yet I'll give it a couple more years I want my kids to get out of school and so forth so you know I'll continue being a scientist I'll continue you know writing my Forbes articles and doing my podcast and when they call on me to come testify before Congress or the White House and things like that, which I do, I'll be there. So, I mean, that's sort of my sort of 2021 goal, but I I'm optimistic because I think we have a mindset now in our federal system that will allow us to really do some things and move forward on, uh, issues that I'm concerned about, whether it be climate issues, racial justice issues, and so forth.
1: Working for the administration, you alluded to something, uh, that was in the news, but I'm not sure that, uh, I wasn't sure if we wanted to talk about it in this
2: venue. Oh, it's out there in the Washington Post and other places. Yeah, yeah. so my name came up as being on the short list for things like Head of NOAA and NASA uh, and some yeah. other things. Um, you know, I, I'd known that even before it was in the press because I'd been contacted by some people asking my interest. So, you know, it's flattering. And like I said, I, you know, given some of the things that I've, I've done and some of the profile that I have, I'm, I, I mean, I say this as humbly as possible. I'm not surprised that my name popped up because. You know, I I know the types of people they look for and the types of experiences they look for. Um, But it's one of these sort of life lessons for graduate students as well. Um, You know, make sure you're comfortable with your decisions. You know, it sounds really awesome to be considered for the head of NASA or NOAA or so forth. But having been in the trenches and understanding it's it's more than just the title. There's actually the work and challenges and struggles and and headaches and Senate confirmations and all those things that come along with it too. And so I, I guess my advice is In general, the grass is not always greener on the other side. uh, Just because you get an opportunity, it may not necessarily be the best opportunity for you, even though everyone else thinks it might be. Uh, So on the other hand, don't be afraid to move. Don't be afraid to change. When I was at NASA, everyone was like, how are you? How do you leave NASA? Who leaves NASA? It's a great, great gig when I left to go to UGA. I did, and it was actually one of the best decisions of my life professionally. I mean, it opened up so many other things. So um, don't be sort of hamstrung and so comfortable with your golden handcuffs when you get at a certain point in your career. But also, don't be willing to jump at every swimming pool that's presented in front of you either.
1: Terrific. Well, okay. Uh, before we go, please just tell the listeners one more time where they can find you uh, out yes. on the internet or, or otherwise.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm at Dr. Shepherd 2013 on Twitter, DR, not doctor, but DR. I'm also on Instagram at Marsh4FSU. Uh, I have a public Facebook page that you can find by just searching Marshall Shepard on, on Facebook. And uh, I guess, I think I'm on LinkedIn too. I don't do much on LinkedIn very much. And my website is drmarshallshepard.com, and I have a UGA website, obviously at UGA too in the geography department.
1: Terrific. Well, uh, everyone listening, please go out and find Dr. Marshall Shepard in any of the venues that he just named, look up his work. Uh, he's terrific. Uh, the YouTube videos that we mentioned of his TED talks, uh, please go out and seek them out because, in particular, the the one about science communication and correcting misconceptions I thought was really valuable. So we'll say goodbye, Dr. Marshall Shepherd. Thank you so much for being on the Future Cities podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX, as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.